root canals. Exactly. Exactly. There's, there's few things that can strike fear into a human being than the word root canal. And there is nothing that can stir up more fear in a Christian than the prospect of having to talk about Jesus to someone who is not a follower of Jesus yet. We can put it on the same scale as a root canal. And more often than not, our fears keep us from witnessing to others about Jesus. There's the fear of offense. One of them is if I share the gospel with someone, tell about Jesus to this person, and they think I am a real doofus and will have nothing to do with me from there on out. I, I could lose a friendship. I could lose credibility with others. If I do at work, I could lose my job. I could be accused of being a narrow-minded bigot, which you don't want to be accused of. Or it could just be really weird, like I share the gospel with my neighbor, and then the next day we're bringing out the trash on the side of the road, and we're looking at each other, and he's kind of like, what are you doing here, freak show? It also be from a fear of failure. We don't witness to others because we fear we don't know what to say. We're feared that we're going to look stupid. We have this fear that what happens if I say something wrong and this person ends up in hell because I've told them the wrong thing? Man, we can live in our fears. We can be ruled by our fears. But let me just drop something into your mind right now. What if? What if God has actually placed you into people's lives so that you would bear witness about Christ to them? And what if that when they hear you speak of your Jesus, of who he is and what he's done for you, and they hear that, God begins to draw them to himself and they come to repent and believe what if, what if God wants to use you to advance his kingdom? What if God has actually purposed to use you as his witness for his glory? Over the last several weeks, we've been looking at God's word to know how to be a modern day disciple of Jesus Christ. And we've been de defining discipleship to Christ as intentionally living your life for Jesus. Every area of your life for Christ. That's what disciples do. Because he's worth it. This morning is the last installment in this series. To live intentionally for Jesus means you will bear witness about Jesus to others. To live intentionally for Jesus is to bear witness to Jesus to others, he's worth it. And his worth overcomes our fears. A witness is a person that testifies to the truth of something that he or she has seen or heard. And maybe, maybe you've witnessed a car accident before and the police come and they take their statements from the witnesses who saw what happened. I recently got rear-ended by 
my jockey and Andrea's and I had to give a statement. Or maybe you've been called to be a witness in a court of law. And as you take your place on the witness stand, a clerk comes up to you and asks you some version of, do you swear to tell the, whole, the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? And you say, I do. When we talk about witnessing, we're talking about testifying to the truth of something we've seen or heard. Now, at the beginning of the book of Acts, the risen Jesus Christ commissions all of his disciples to be his witnesses to whoever, wherever. To be a 21st century witness of Jesus, to be a 21st disciple of Jesus is to be a 21st century witness to Jesus, to testify to the truth of who he is and what he's done for us. Would you open up your Bibles now to Acts chapter 1, and I'm going to read through six verse, verses 6 through 11. Acts is right after the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then you're in Acts. And as you're turning there, let me just give you a little heads up as to what's been going on here. The passage that we're about to, receive, to read, it, it's a dialogue. We're going to see the disciples ask Jesus something. Jesus is going to respond by saying something. And then these two angels come out of nowhere and ask another question. It's really interesting. But all this happened 40 days after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And so Jesus has been raised, he's been appearing to his disciples in various places, and now we come to this. They've gathered together on the Mount of Olives outside Jerusalem. So when they had gathered, Jesus and his disciples, they, the disciples, asked him, the risen Lord, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee... Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is God's word. Here's how we're going to proceed this morning. I'm going to kind of slow down and just walk you through that passage again. I want you to see some things. And then I'm going to make the point of the passage. It has to do with being a 21st century witness for Jesus. And then we're going to take the content of this passage and bring it to bear into our 21st century context. So let's start with this story. Forty days following Jesus' resurrection, the risen Christ is gathered with the disciples. Bethany, Mount of Olives, outside of Jerusalem. Verse 6, the disciples ask Jesus a question. And remember, these disciples are all Jews from the northern region of Israel called Galilee, and they say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? That's a very interesting question. Now remember, at this time, Israel was still under Roman rule in occupation, and so here's what's going on in the disciples' minds. 
Jesus has been raised from the dead. We're watching and hearing now a risen king, the Messiah. And so what they're thinking is, he's the guy. He's the Messiah. So maybe now's the time when the Messiah comes, kicks the Romans out, and sets up his reign in Israel. And so they are expecting that the land of Israel to be liberated from foreign occupation. These disciples are asking a question that goes something like this. It's more of a statement. Hey, it's time to get these foreign occupiers out of here and restore the true kingdom with Jesus as the Messiah King to the land of Israel. They have an ethnocentric geographic understanding of the kingdom of God. They're thinking that Jesus is going to bring the kingdom just for them. The kingdom is about them. One could say they could be making the kingdom of God into their own image. And it's just not limited to the first century. Here in the 21st century, we have a tendency of thinking that the kingdom of God, the saving reign of Jesus, should look like us. It should look like the way we look. It should be here. And so Jesus, in verse 7, responds to their question and and let me just tell you up front, he, he doesn't tell them what they want to hear. He, he doesn't answer their question the way they wanted him to answer it. Jesus begins in verse 7, It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, I can't tell you if this is that time. It's not for you to know. You don't have security clearance from the Father. Only he knows. One thing you can't miss from this statement is that the Father, the first person of the Trinity, is exercising authority over time. He has fixed the times and the seasons according to his authority. Time serves the Father's purposes. And then in verse 8, Jesus answers their question not with a yes or no, or not with a, hey, here's the time. He answers their question with mission. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. The disciples, the Jewish disciples, were not expecting this. They were expecting the risen Messiah to be kicking out the foreign occupiers and restore his messianic kingdom reign to ethnic Israel within the geography of Jerusalem. But what he tells them is, I'm not kicking them out. I'm not kicking the Gentiles out. I'm sending out you to the Gentiles. I'm sending you out to proclaim my saving reign for all to hear, including the Gentiles, to the end of the earth. 
He's not kicking the nations out. He's sending his disciples out on mission. And this mission is going to start in Jerusalem, which is the city, the capital of Israel. And it's located in the region of Judea. And then north of Judea is Samaria. And then beyond all of that are the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying, hey, gang, I'm going global with the saving reign of God. You're going to need the Holy, Spout, Holy Spirit to do what I've commissioned you to do. And then in verse 9, there are no time for questions. Jesus commissions his disciples. And then we read, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. After telling them that he is going global with his saving reign and that he has just volunteered his disciples to be the promotional force, he then splits. He takes off, and he takes off in the most memorable of ways. Now, if you want to learn how to make a memorable exit from a party, look at right here. He basically says, okay, I'm sending you guys out on a global mission to expand my saving reign. And he basically does a mic drop at that point. And then he's like taken up, lifted up. And what we see from these verse 9 is that he gets on a cloud escalator of sorts that lifts him up and out of the sight of his disciples into heaven. He ascends bodily into heaven and is now at the right hand of God, a position of authority. Have, have you ever re released like a red helium balloon before? Kind of a, a balloon release, and you let that thing go, and you're watching that red balloon go up into the blue sky, and you just keep on watching it, watching it, and then you start having a hard time seeing it, and you're like, I think I still see it, I think I still see it, and then, and then it kind of disappears. You can't see it anymore. Verse 10 they're still gazing into heaven as Jesus is ascending when this other surprise happens. Out of nowhere, two men are standing by them in white robes. I was with a couple guys yesterday, and we are kind of joking about this. It's like they're looking up into the sky, and then all of a sudden two guys are like, whoa, like, where'd you guys come from? They're dressed in white. The last time two guys in dazzling white apparel showed up was 40 days earlier on Resurrection Sunday at the empty tomb, and they asked a question, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He's not here. He is risen. These are two angels, and you can't help but wonder if they're the same two angels that were at the empty tomb. And here they are in verse 10, proclaiming the ascension of Jesus. They've proclaimed the resurrection bodily. Now they're proclaiming, hey, he's gone up. Look at verse 11. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who's taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And, and what is that way he went into heaven? On a cloud. He's going to come back on a cloud. 
And what that is, is a veiled reference to the day fixed by the Father in which the risen Son of Man returns from the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven to be given dominion over all people and all things for all time. Daniel 7, 13 through 14. And when he comes, he's going to bring judgment. He's going to make all things right. And there's no doubt that we're talking about Jesus. This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. On the clouds. All authority. Basically, these two angels are saying to Jesus' disciples, hey guys, stop looking up in the air. It's time to get down to business. The same way he went up is the same way he's going to come back. Now go wait for the Holy Spirit to come and send you out. So 40 days after the resurrection, the risen Christ commissions his disciples to be his witnesses to all people everywhere. The kingdom of the Messiah, the saving reign of God, isn't just being limited to Jews and geographic Israel. It is going global. The saving reign of Jesus is to be proclaimed to all people, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their location. God is seeking to do a global work of gathering people to worship him through Jesus. Now, after saying these things, Jesus, of course, is taken up into a cloud into heaven. The rest of the book of Acts is the outworking of Acts 1-8. We see in chapters 1 and through 7, the early church empowered by the Holy Spirit preaching the gospel to Jerusalem. And then in chapters 8 through 12, we see the early church empowered by the Spirit making Jesus known to all Judea and Samaria. And then in chapters 13 through 28, we see the early church empowered by the Spirit proclaiming Jesus to the ends of the earth. So here's the point. Here's why this is in our Bibles. Until Jesus returns, we, his church, bear witness to him, to all people, everywhere. That's the point. Until he comes back, we are to be witnessing about Jesus to others. The church is the witnessing community of the risen Christ. It's who we are, and it's what we do. So if you're a disciple of Jesus and you're seeking to live intentionally for him, you will be witnessing to him. You will be telling others about him. And it's the worth of Jesus that will overcome your fears. Come on over here, Mike, for a second. I just need to talk to you. Come here, buddy. Yeah, what can I do for you? Are you telling me that as a follower of Jesus, I need to actually talk to people about Jesus? Seriously? I need to open my mouth up? And I need to identify with Jesus and talk to them about, about Jesus? Seriously? It's not me who's telling you, I'm telling you, but it's Jesus who has commissioned you. He's commissioned you as his disciples to be his witnesses, to speak the truth of who he is and what he's done. I mean, 
Matthew 28, Jesus is giving all authority in heaven and earth. And he says, go, therefore, make disciples of the nations. And the way that we make disciples of the nations begins with witnessing to others about the person and work of Jesus. Matthew 5, Jesus tells us the church to be salt and light in a de decaying and dark world. We are to show and tell the gospel. I'll never forget my second grade teacher at Roaring Brook Elementary School in Avon, Connecticut, her name is Mrs. Ball. And I had a crush on her the size of China. I, I, I could smell her perfume down the hall. That's serious stuff right there. She was 59 and I loved her. <laughs> well, Mrs. Ball had a time, what's called show and tell. And so... Me and my students would bring things in to show and tell our classmates, and I brought in my 85-pound, long-haired German shepherd. Her name was Jody. And I brought Jody in, who was my joy, and my classmates carefully pet her, and I got to tell about my dog. It was a joy. Show and tell. Jesus is calling us to show and tell about him, our joy. So when we bump into a passage like Colossians 4, 6, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. The presumption is we're in proximity to non-Christians and they have questions about our lifestyles and that we need to know how to explain why we're living lives distinct from everybody else. And so when Paul says, you may know how, that you may know how to ought to answer each person, Paul's not saying, hey, would you guys be ready so that if someone comes up to you and asks for directions to the Mars Cheese Castle, you'll be ready to answer them? That's not what we're talking about. Here's what we're talking about. We need to be able to give an explanation for why our lives are distinct from everybody else. So if we have people coming up to us and asking, hey, why are you so happy all the time? It's an opportunity to bear witness, show and tell Jesus. If we have someone come up to us and say, hey, I notice you don't lie anymore. Opportunity to show and tell Jesus. Hey, you're not sleeping around anymore. Show and tell Jesus. Hey, you're not smoking weed anymore. Show and tell Jesus. Hey, you're not, you're not flipping out and freaking out and getting angry all the time anymore. Show and tell Jesus. We give a reason, an explanation. We know how to answer people. We listen to what they say. We listen to what they ask. And we respond by showing and telling about Jesus very appropriately. 1 Peter 3.15, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Our lives are to be distinct. We are to do the good works God has called us to, and then the people who see it are to give glory to our Father in heaven, Matthew 5.16. So what I want to help you see here is the point is, until Jesus comes back, we're to be witnessing about Jesus. All who live for Christ will testify to Christ. Now, 
thought about asking you all to raise your hands with this. Who is scared to talk to others about Jesus? Just two of us. <laughs> Do you know what that means? When we raise our hand and say, yeah, I, I'm, it's scary for me to think about sharing the gospel with my boss. Or it's scary to think about sharing the gospel with my neighbor who's living with his homosexual lover. It's scary to me. Do you know what that means? It doesn't mean we don't share the gospel. It means we need courage. It means we need boldness. It means we have an opportunity. So for the remainder of our time, I, I want to encourage you from this text. I, I want you to see five encouraging truths from Acts 1, 6 through 11 that ought to motivate witness in your life. Here's number one. Be encouraged by the sovereign control of your heavenly Father. In chapter 1, verse 6, the disciples say, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. What kind of being has the authority and the power to determine times and seasons? Who does that? A being who is sovereign over all time and whose time does his bidding. That's who that is. And let me just let you know, God is not just sovereign over time. He's sovereign over all things. Listen to Acts 17, 25 through 26. This is a sermon that Paul was preaching in Holy Spirit boldness. He says, God himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And God made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live in all the face of the earth, having determined periods, times, and the boundaries of their dwelling place, where they live, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So the one who determines times and seasons also determines when and where people live so that they can somehow find him. Do you know what this means? God has placed you at this time and at this place to help people find him, to bear witness to him. Think about the apartment you live in or the neighborhood you're on or the, or the townhouses you live in. Think about God stacking the deck of all those residents with you as his witnessing ace. He's got you there for a reason. And it's not just that he's placed you there. God has placed everybody else around you there as well. He's sovereign over it all. And so the walkaway is this. God has placed you already in a mission field. It's your neighborhood, it's your school, it's your club, it's the gym you go to, the coffee shop you frequent, 
It's Woodminster Festival. These paths that you live out your life, they are intersecting with other people. And it's all under the sovereign care and purpose of God. So you know what that means? We don't need to do drive-by evangelism. We, we don't need to go knock on a door and try to get through the gospel as fast as we can and get the door shut in our face and just feel good about ourselves because we've delivered the goods. We've got people all around us already waiting, seeking, so get to know their names. As the weather warms up and as you find yourself outside more and your neighbors are outside, move towards them. Get to know their names. Start getting to know their, their stories. And as you get to know their names and their stories, you get to share life with them because they're going to want to know your name and your story. And your story has a hero, and his name is Jesus, and it's just a matter of time before you start to show and tell them to them. So the first thing that should encourage you is God's sovereign over it all, and he's placed you where you're at for a reason, to be his witness. Second encouragement, be emboldened by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the second person of the Trinity, and he indwells each of us for a variety of reasons. Now, do you remember that the disciples on the night that Jesus was betrayed when they were in the garden, do you remember what happened to the disciples? They heard the crowd coming to arrest Jesus, and they bolted. They abandoned Jesus in fear. They ran. They were afraid. But in Acts 2, the fulfillment of Acts 1-8 takes place. They, they received the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God on Pentecost is poured out on the early church, all of his disciples. Men and women, boys and girls, all disciples in that upper room, the Holy Spirit was poured out on them. And the cowardly disciples were all of a sudden transformed and they were made into by the Holy Spirit courageous, spirit-empowered proclaimers of the crucified and risen Christ. We see it in, in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's first sermon. Boy, that is bold. It's the Holy Spirit emboldening him to preach Christ. It's a dramatic change from where they were just 40, 43 days before, cowering, running, Hiding, afraid. The difference is the Holy Spirit. And the moment, Christian, you believed in Jesus, you were indwelt by that same Holy Spirit. He resides in you. And he is willing and he is able to empower you to be a bold, winsome witness for Christ to all around you. But I need to tell you this as well. The Holy Spirit just does not come on us just to make us bold. Do you realize the mission that Jesus has called us to is humanly impossible? We, in, of, in and of ourselves, are unable to change someone's eternity. We cannot make someone 
transfer them from the kingdom of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. We can't do that. We are unable to revive someone who's spiritually dead and bring them back into spiritual life. We, we can't do that. What we're able to do is faithfully proclaim the gospel message, and as the gospel message goes out, the Holy Spirit gets done what only he can do. Bring people who are spiritually dead and raise them from the dead and give them spiritual life. To take people living in darkness and bringing them into the glorious light of our Savior. So not only do we need boldness because we're afraid, we need the Holy Spirit power that changes people. We're not going to depend upon our presentations. We're not going to depend upon our techniques. We're going to depend upon the power of the Holy Spirit working in and through us to convince people of their need for Jesus. So here's the application. We do what the first century church did. We pray. We pray for boldness. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be poured out afresh. We pray the Holy Spirit will accompany our witness and convince people of their sin and spotlight Jesus and bring them from death to life. And not only that, we ask others to pray for us. For those of you who are in our life group, as you're heading towards the summer, be asking, hey, life group folks, would you be praying for me? Because I, I really want to be sharing the gospel with my neighbor. Her name is this. Would you start praying for me and for my neighbor? praying for opportunities that I can show and tell Jesus to her. In Ephesians 6 and Colossians 4, Paul asks these churches to pray for him for boldness and clarity and speaking about Jesus to others. Let's do the same. Don't just pray for yourself. Pray for opportunities to boldly engage others for Jesus. You know what's going to happen? Here's what happened. You get to share... Jesus with somebody else, and you walk away, you're like, that was awesome. What a privilege. I got to share the good news. Here's what I want to impress upon you. The effectiveness of our witness is not dependent on our presentation. The effectiveness of our witness is dependent on Holy Spirit power. We must be dependent on him. Third, be courageous because the unstoppable advance of the kingdom of heaven. Let me just sum up this way. Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see it played out in Acts. The gospel spoken by the spirit and power church is unstoppable. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the age, to fellow Jews, and then to Samaritans, and then to Gentiles, with tremendous response. Unstoppable. Gospel, powered by the Spirit, through His church, unstoppable. I have a question for you. Do you believe that the Holy Spirit who empowered the first century church 
to proclaim an unstoppable gospel is the same Holy Spirit empowering the 21st century church to proclaim the same gospel to this people. Me too. Fourth, be bold in your witness because the return of Christ is one day closer. Remember those angels? Hey guys, stop looking up there. He's gonna come back in the same way he went on the clouds. He's coming back. Let me put it to you this way. The day that Jesus returns is the last day you will be witnessing to Jesus. Do you know why? Everyone will see him. Everyone will see him at that time. On that day, there's no more need for public witness because he has come. Your days of witnessing are numbered. He's coming back. Be faithful. Be bold. When we talk about the second coming of Jesus, it should sober us. It should cause us to loosen our grips on the things of this world and narrow our focus on what matters most, worship of God. His fame spread through the nations. Application, his return is one day closer, not one day farther out. It should sober you, embolden you, focus you. Finally, be a bold witness of Jesus because he's worth it. He is worth it. Acts 1.8, you shall be my witnesses. Not witnesses to ourselves. Not witnesses of Wisconsin. Not witnesses of an old building. Witnesses of a living Jesus. There are two things that go into a compelling witness. Awe over who he is and gratitude for what he's done. Let me just say it this way. The reason why we're afraid of witnessing is not a technique problem. In the words of Paul Tripp, it's an awe problem. Our view of Jesus is too small. So let me remind you of a couple things. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, one of the most awe-inspiring descriptions of Jesus in your Bible. He is the Lord of creation and the Lord of redemption. Take a look at it. It is amazing. Revelation 19, Jesus shows up on a white war horse, and he's got four names, faithful and true, because his word always proves true. He's got another name that nobody knows himself because he himself is beyond comprehension of any of us. He's the word of God, the ultimate final revelation of God. And he is the last name, king of kings and lord of lords. This is the one whom we bear witness to. Not a little Jesus. A big Jesus. Lord of creation, lord of redemption. Faithful and true, a name no one knows. The word of God, king of kings, 
and Lord of Lords. Are you lacking boldness in your witness? Worship Jesus. See him for who he is. And let your witness be driven by worship. All of the risen one. And it's not just who he is, it's what he's done. Gratitude. Can you believe it? It never gets old. The second person of the Trinity humbled himself by taking on human flesh, was crucified on a Roman cross. God's wrath was poured out on him in full for those who were sinned against him. What has he done? He's rescued you and me from the power and penalty of sin. We've been de delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son in whom we have redemption. The forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of all of our sins. He has set us free from slavery to sin. He's given us a new life and a new eternal destiny. Do you know what happens in the heart of a sinner who's been forgiven much? She loves much. Incredibly grateful. And it goes like this. I'm so grateful for what Jesus has done for me. I want to tell others about it so that they can experience the same grace, the same freedom, the same forgiveness and deliverance, the same joy. You see, Jesus is our hero. He's the one we proclaim. And out of great awe for who he is and deep gratitude for what he's done, we witness to others around us, not because we have to, because we want to. We're compelled to. Could you imagine calling your mom today? Hey, mom, happy birthday. Or happy Mother's Day, sorry. Yeah, you know, I've been really busy, Mom, and, I, you know, the wife's been riding me to call you all day today to wish you a happy Mother's Day, so have a good one. Got to get back to clipping my nails. Really compelling, right? Versus, hi, Mom. I am so grateful that you're my mom. The older I get, the more grateful I am. You have made me the man I am. I want to be like you, Mom. And thanks for being my mom, for still being my mom. Gratitude, delight, blessing, joy. The first one, obligation, duty. The second one, gratitude, joy, blessing. Let's not witness to Jesus out of obligation and duty. Let's witness to Jesus out of gratitude and awe and joy. People want to know. How do you witness to Jesus? What do you tell them? Well, you tell them how awesome he is. And you tell them how grateful you are for what he's done for you. And he offers them the same. 
Acts 1, 6 through 11 shows us that until Jesus returns, we, his disciples, must be witnessing about who he is and what he's done. That was true of the first century church, and it's just as true as the 21st century church. A disciple of Jesus bears witness to who he, Jesus is and what he's done out of deep awe and gratitude. Do you know what we should expect? That God's going to save people through our witness. And so the Holy Spirit is going to use us. The bottom line is this. Jesus is worth our witness. And his worth overcomes our fears. I want to tell you about two resources that I think will really encourage you. There's a book. It's called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. It's by Rosaria Butterfield. She was a feminist English professor at Syracuse in a lesbian relationship, and she engaged with a Christian whose faithful witness led her to the Lord. It is a wonderful, wonderful account. It is so encouraging and instructive. I would commend it to you. The second book I would encourage you to read or listen to is a book called Gospel Fluency by Jeff Vanderstelt. Speaking the truths of Jesus into the everyday stuff of life, particularly part five, the gospel to others. He is so helpful in, in instructing us and equipping us how to speak the gospel into people's lives with where they're at. But make sure you listen to the four parts that precede it. Because they show you the worth of Jesus. As 21st century followers of Jesus, we're to be 21st century witnesses to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, our risen King, you are worthy. And we would ask that you would use us as your church to bear witness to who you are and what you've done empowered by your spirit for the glory of your name among the nations. God, would you help us to witness in our homes and send us to the nations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.